I love when uh, newcomers come to the church because then if they've never understood vibrant body life before, they get an opportunity to experience it and, and the growth that comes from it. All of that, of course, uh, is germane to our subject this weekend, so it's just so wonderful to talk about these truths that are near and dear to my heart. Now, I, I said last night that we would do that second session first, and so now you'll go back to the first session and the, the subject matter of what makes this such a challenge, and, and uh, I want to talk to you this morning about some, some pitfalls, really, uh, of discipleship, things you have to watch out for that make the discipleship process uh, more difficult than it has to be. Take your Bibles and look with me first at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll begin there and, and jump around to a few other texts, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul chides the church at Corinthians, church at Corinth, he, he uh, rebukes them because they had taken all the wonderful gifts that God had given, and they'd misused them. In fact, Corinth was told that they lacked in no gift. It's an interesting uh, reality that here was a church Paul wanted to shepherd so badly, and they had every problem you can imagine. In fact, we've often joked as pastors that we wouldn't go to a church like that with all those problems. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a messy place, but Paul loved the Corinthians, and he said to them, you, didn't, you don't lack in any gift. God has given you so many wonderful gifts a great measure of all the gifts that are given to the corporate body. But they had taken them, and they had abused them. And you notice here that he has to say some things up front that are humiliating to uh, those that should have known better and been further along in their Christian life. First Corinthians chapter 3, he says that I, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. And I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You weren't able to receive it. I mean, I, I had to bring such basic Christianity 101 to you all the time. And you should have been further down the, lo- down the road. You should have been digesting greater truth, transcendent realities. You should have been able to think through greater implications for the Christian life. And there should have been at least a core in the church that were maturing to the point that, that this wonderful trickle-down effect of the mature on the immature, life on life, could have been taking place. But not you, Corinth. You, you atrophied, you became weak. And he says, why here? You weren't able to receive it. You're not even yet able, verse 3, for you're still fleshly. And what particular kind of fleshliness? Well, he mentions here those, those twin uh, ugly partners, jealousy and strife. He, he uses those terms quite often in his epistles. Jealousy and strife. Uh, since that's existent, are you not then fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And it had manifested itself in, in factions and, and popularity contests. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus. And, uh, and he was basically telling them, now, now ministry's hindered. The growth of the ministry is hindered. So here's how I want you to look at yourself, chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to look at yourself the way we as missionaries and as ministers look at ourselves. I want every man to regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards, slaves and those responsible to, to accomplish what we're given to do. You don't, you don't make up ministry. You don't uh, come to a church and say, here I am. You don't even uh, craft some way to have an outlet for whatever you believe God's given you to do. Sometimes guys would come to the church and say, well, I do this, and I want to do this. And You know, when someone's new at the church, you always want warm bodies, but, but I, don't, I get nervous when somebody wants to do something the moment they've arrived because I, I wonder about the Corinthian problem going on. I wonder about ambition. I wonder about whether or not they've thought through the context and do they understand that we don't know each other and the church is going to have concerns about newcomers and they should have concerns about the church. They don't even know what kind of church it is. But they want to do something automatically. And Paul says, here's how you have to consider yourself. Here's how we consider ourselves and this is how you have to think of us. We are slaves of Christ and stewards of the mysteries 
of God. Now, in his case, an apostolic role and a pastoral role and an evangelistic role, those were the sets of gifts and appointed offices that Paul carried. For you and I, though, we look at the implications of this verse, and those words stand out. We are servants and stewards. So we don't come in and say, I am of this particular deal, or this program, or I am of this group, or this clique. We don't even say that I, I need to have a role. One of the problems in discipleship is, is that we are hindered by an idolatry of a particular kind that we must crush. And it is the, the idolatry of our own significance. We have at times an uncrucified lust for significance. And so when we get into relationships in the church, one of two things happens. Either we have success in that relationship and therefore we puff up our significance, or that relationship is troubled and in order to protect our love of our significance, we retreat. Both problems cripple the discipleship relationships in the church. And so I want to begin there this morning by saying that if we're going to disciple one another, we have to lay the axe at the root of the tree, this ugly idolatry of significance in our lives. And men, let's face it, we feed this on a variety of fronts. Um, Men most particularly in the things that they achieve in their career, their workplace. I know that Uh, success is given by God. And despite the curse where you work hard and it only yields a little bit, that is the curse of God on mankind and a curse of God on his labors and a curse of God from the fall on the earth itself. The earth does not yield easily its wonderful fruits that God had intended before the fall. And so despite, however, the fact that we work hard and and uh, relatively speaking, eke out far less than it would have produced had there been no curse. Despite that, we still enjoy the fruit of our labors, as I said last night. In the wonderful common grace of God, even pagans can work hard and enjoy the fruit of their labor, amazingly. But even as we're enjoying the fruit of our labor, it it is a hazardous zone because it is a potential for feeding this very idolatry of our own significance which cripples our ability to build relationships in the church. And so the first pitfall, the first reason that discipleship is so difficult at times is that sometimes we disciple from selfish ambition. Or we might even add, we don't disciple because of selfish ambition. We've been hurt in relationships and we back away from them. Or we have a successful dynamic in a group of our friends and we puff ourselves up with significance. But we must remember some things, Uh, just sort of underneath that overarching principle, this first pitfall of discipling from selfish ambition, we must remember some things that, that clarify for us where we ought to be, and Paul begins it right here. You're a slave and a steward. A slave is owned. If you want a, a great verse, it's kind of a, I mean, it's just wonderful in Luke 17, You remember the disciples were asking Jesus to increase their faith. Tell us how to increase our faith. And he said, you know, he gives that great statement. If you'd had faith like a mustard seed, you could defy what normally the natural world looks like. But the faith that I've given you, the the grace to have the faith I've given you, you don't need any more of that. You just need need to act on real faith, pure faith. Even a small mustard seed version of real faith can accomplish amazing things. And then he says in verse 10, when you've obeyed all that I've commanded, then I want you to consider yourself in this way. I'm an unworthy slave who's only done what is expected of him. So in this terminology that Paul uses, it's, it's the same concept. I'm a, I'm a slave. I'm a servant. I serve Christ. He can do with me as he pleases. In fact, he could put me on the shelf if he wants to. And sometimes in church history, you see that, you know, you, you have uh, these men like Spurgeon who've lived all these great ministries, many, many years, great ministries, speaking to thousands upon thousands of people, and his contemporary 
you know, these, these pastors who didn't have his influence lived in obscurity, but they were faithful. And, you know, you think about these great men like David Brainerd, who was absolutely brilliant, but died very young, ministering to a mere 30 Indians on the banks of the Delaware River. And you, you look at that and you think, wait a minute, he could have been so much more significant. But the Lord, when he saves you, gives you gifts to use for him. They're not yours. They're his. He can use them in public or obscurity any way he chooses. And you're never to take yourself so seriously as though he owes us something based upon the talents and the place in life and the job that we have and the, the work that we do, that, that God somehow owes us some significance from that. We don't have any, any significance apart from Christ and his use of us. None. And quite often we're, we're worshiping at this idol of our own significance in some of these ways, and we're not considering this matter of being a servant, a slave of Christ. God owes me nothing. He can do with me as he pleases. Maybe the greatest illustration in the Bible of that is John the Baptist himself. The greatest prophet uh, until Christ came. And uh, he spent his entire life in the wilderness, much to the chagrin of his family and his parents. He was obscure. God took him out there. He lived on a strange diet in strange clothing, preparing for just a very short role that he was going to have. It was a prominent role. It is an historic role. It is an amazing role, and yet he was prepared for it in obscurity. Then he comes out of obscurity into public, and he preaches as the forerunner of Christ, and then what happens? Well, he says of his own ministry, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. And then what happened? He gets jailed, and he gets his head lopped off. Now, you'd think that the greatest prophet until Christ came, you'd think that could be a significant ministry, and why wouldn't God plan it out that the guy could have this amazing role, maybe even a tandem role with Jesus? Always pointing to Christ, of course, always, but a great role. But it's as though God wanted the, the statement that came out of John the Baptist's mouth to be, to be vividly portrayed and graphically demonstrated. His life did decrease instantly, and he went to heaven. His role was done. And this is instructive for us, because when we come into the church, if you want to be available to God, to really be used by God in a discipleship relationship, you must understand this first term. You are a slave of Christ, owned by Christ. He can do with us what he pleases. Our significance gets in the way, dishonors him, and it is false worship. To worship oneself at any level, to have an uncrucified lust for our own significance, is false worship. It doesn't honor the Lord. Now, he's patient. He's patient with us. Um, trying to channel us constantly with his word and with his spirit into the, the maximum effectiveness that he has designed for us. And we keep moving off track. And then Paul throws in this second term, we're stewards. That is to say, we're going to be held accountable for whatever it is we, we're given to do. We'll be held accountable for it. Now, I know that <clears throat> because we have such a robust view of, uh, by the way, could somebody get me some water, room temperature water? That'd be great, thank you. Uh, because we have such a robust view of, of the grace of God in salvation and that there's no condemnation, and because it's true that we only get chastened by our loving Heavenly Father, we're never judged for the mistakes that we make and the way we squander His resources. Because we have such a high view of that, we've sometimes made the mistake of also assuming that when you arrive in heaven and you meet Jesus, that your stewardship's not going to be measured. Or if it is going to be measured, all you're ever going to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. And indeed, we are promised that in the grace of Christ, we will hear those things. And how marvelous that is. But make no mistake, Paul will go on to say 
in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians that there's coming a day when you will have your efforts and your ministry tested by the Lord. In fact, the language is quite stark. Notice um, in chapter 3, he says, you ought to be careful how you build, verse 10, with the resources God's given you. Be careful how you build. Verse 11 is a warning. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. If what you're doing in your efforts in ministry or lack of it is not actually building on the foundation that Christ has begun with gospel ministry and the church here, faith community, then you are building some other edifice, some other construct. If you love your significance, whatever it is in ministry or work, you're over here building another edifice. It isn't on the foundation of gospel ministry that Christ has begun. That's a warning. And then he says, because each man's work, verse 13, will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Wow, okay. Now you're going to meet Christ and you're in Christ and there's no condemnation, but he gave you something to do and he gave you gifts to do it. And the stewardship language of chapter 4 is why Paul is using that language. is because of chapter 3. He's saying you're going to meet Christ. And you must be careful how you build. Christ laid the foundation. He's the cornerstone. I laid my foundation. Another man's building upon it. But be careful because you're, you're stewards. Stewards are measured. Stewards are tested. Stewards bring their work and it's examined. You and I have a work to do. We're not supposed to get in the way. This is God's building, God's field. You have a lot of little gardens that aren't God's garden that are built up around your life where you can show off your nice crops of your own significance. You have a lot of little buildings and edifices around God's building that you've been constructing. All that is going to burn. All that's going to go away. All that is a, is a moment of sadness. You say, sadness? I'm going to be entering heaven. I get the inheritance. Yes, but notice it says... In verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And it could have just said, that's work that's lost. But he uses the pronoun and he does say he will suffer loss. For some, in some sense, when you are gaining the inheritance and hearing the words, well done, you're also going to have to look at a pile of ashes where you worshiped your own significance, and, and at least in the moment, in holy grief, um, know that you could have used that for the Lord and didn't. That is profound and instructive. So, men, we must not do discipleship from selfish ambition. God can put us on the shelf at any time. Um... We should never take ourselves so seriously. We're merely slaves who believe and through whom others believe. We view ourselves as a steward and there is going to be an ultimate examination. So I love that. It's very, very uh, sobering when we think about discipleship then on a practical level. Lord, have you given me men to disciple and I haven't done anything about it? Lord, have I, have I been able to disciple but I've kind of fed my own significance in it? I kind of see myself as somebody in their sight. Uh, and how much of that has led to uh, a, a more casual, willing worship of my own significance in other arenas of life? Uh, some of you have um, raised your kids, and, and some of them have turned out pretty well. And, and there is, in the common grace of God, a sense in which there's achievement on that end with your kids. You look at that achievement, and we, our culture uses language like, well, I'm so proud of them. And we don't mean ugly pride. We don't, we don't typically mean by the mere use of the phrase that we are taking all this credit and letting it shine like this glory cloud over us. We're merely basking in the wonderful sense of achievement that comes from laboring for your kids and then seeing them begin to build their life and, and grow in their ability to achieve something for their families. That's typically what we mean by it. But 
still, families can be troubled because a dad, uh, he wants his kids to succeed because when they succeed, it does, in his heart, make him more significant. It does, in his own mind and heart, make him uh, uh, look good in front of others. And sometimes you'll go there in your heart with others. You'll You'll feel that and sense that and glory in that when you're with friends. And you might even go so far as to rejoice in someone else's demise because you love the significance your family gives to you, but they didn't have that. And so your heart, when you love significance, can actually go to the point where you rejoice in someone else's weakness. Has that ever happened to you? Especially people you don't like. Somebody across the church aisle is someone that's frustrating to you and you irritate one another and then you hear that that their young their their son got himself into a scrape and and in your heart you don't you're not grieved like the apostle paul when someone falls into sin you actually are maybe glorying in it maybe gloating a little bit maybe in your heart saying yeah well if you should have done this then these are all signs that we have taken ourselves too seriously and we have begun to, to not deal with this issue of personal significance. It will kill a discipleship culture in a church. Because on the one hand, those that are successful, it seems, will become the person that is significant in those men's lives and they'll love it so. Pretty soon people are following people. They're following personalities. I and mean, we have a major problem in evangelicalism in our culture with uh, cranking up YouTube and following our favorite personalities and then going to church and being disappointed because all the stuff we see on YouTube is not happening in the church, certainly from the pulpit. How many wonderfully faithful pastors have had to deal with so much disappointment because they're being constantly compared as shepherds with some fascinating sort of you know, buzz that's going through the internet about some individual that you don't even know? You don't know them, you don't know their lives, you don't know their church, you don't even know uh, whether what they're teaching is really what they live. But you love them because we have reduced popularity to the level that Corinth did. Well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Why? Because they make me look significant. And, and then they're arguing. So there's no discipleship going on at a, at a godly level because we're not transparent. We're full of pride. Everything's about the significance of some leader and the significance I get from following him. This was a problem. And then the second problem occurs. The, the church gets into factions because, hey, you hurt me. You didn't puff up my significance. And so I hold that against you and I, I will not engage. And you see that. Men pulling out of ministry because they got hurt and their significance wasn't stroked. So this is a huge hindrance to discipleship. It's not really, uh, when we talk about hindrances to discipleship, it's not really about whether or not we've spent, um, you know, these programmed times together. Those facilitate relationships, no doubt, and you must give time to it. We'll talk about that in the second session. But it's not really about those things. It's about whether or not you are taking yourself too seriously or whether you're discipling in selfish ambition. And Paul warns us not to do that. A second pitfall, um, a second you know, sort of problem that makes discipleship difficult is discipleship that is untethered to Scripture. It's untethered. It's not linked to Scripture in some sound, very clear way. What do I mean by this? I mean that when you get into a relationship with somebody... You speak gospel generalities and you go through a book, but the discernment level isn't there to see whether what you're hearing is right and good, and, uh, and you're totally dependent on someone else for any real substantive work in the text to find out if, you, if you're accurate or not about a particular teaching. And then in the discipleship relationship itself, gospel generalities are, are much easier to hang around because the scriptures are very specific, and you don't want to drill down too deep because that could get too convicting. So what I end up finding out is, oh, we started this discipleship group, and, and months later, you've got six or seven guys, and they're coming. If I, if I ask, well, what are you studying? Well, we're, we're studying this. Well, what are you realizing from that? Do you have some principles that, 
that you're teaching one another. And, and well, yeah, we have some, uh, you know, these principles. And they tend to be, they tend to be generic, sometimes even pragmatic, uh, sometimes a mixture of the world and the Bible. Sometimes it's just flat-out error. It's just things that they've heard somewhere. And then you begin to ask about discernment. Well, who, who's checking that? Who's leading the group? Well, we're not really, we don't really have a leader. We just sort of get some coffee, and we sit around, and, and you know, like the old, when I was growing up, the old groups that would get together, the small groups, and, and they would say, what does the Bible mean to you? And then everyone would just kind of pool their ignorance and talk. And then they went away refreshed, having talked with some people who felt as spiritual as they did for having been there. And this is what discipleship groups can be reduced to if, if you're not tethered to Scripture, which means that the mature in the group must model that. And so they cannot dabble in truth. In a discipleship relationship, it's, it's a focus on God's Word exclusively. What other point is there? Discipleship is about becoming more like Christ. And so there's no other point. And it would be sad enough if you just reduced it to, hey, let's talk about our hobbies or let's talk about, you know, let's just jaw jack about work or, or whatever. That would be sad enough, but it would be tragic to call it a discipleship group and yet your, your instruction is not clarifying. You understand that Christian growth is not about the time you spend. It is about clarity. The clarity of truth. That's all that we are concerned about in the Christian life. Do we understand God's revelation and its implications for our lives? And are we exhorting one another to believe it by faith and humbly yield to it? That is how we change and grow. We're not merely talking about transparency. Some, some groups years ago, I think it was way back when, when the Promise Keepers group got together, uh, I was speaking with the leadership of that movement at one point, and they were talking about small groups and discipleship. And I said, well, what is discipleship to you? Like, what happens in the small groups? Oh, it's men getting together and just being transparent. Well, I mean, that could be disastrous. Uh, you know, if somebody in the group, you know, feels cathartic to tell all and fills everybody else's mind with things that are a violation of Ephesians 5, I don't, I don't know that that's helpful. But what do you mean transparency, you know? Well, you know, guys just need to be transparent. That's how we grow. Transparency is not how you grow. Transparency before God and others is essential to growth, but that is not how you grow. You grow by the truth, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth, John 17, 17. And if you don't have clarity about the truth, discipleship groups descend into more of this surface skimming across basic things. It might be Christianity 101. It might not, but... Most of the time, the men don't know. And uh, you say, well, I've got good resources. I've got an online uh, program, and we've got good resources, and we go to a good church. Well, that's great. You need that. That's essential. It's, it's a great privilege in our day and age to have that. But then what if somebody teaches you error, and you start perpetuating that in the group? How will you know? So if discipleship is not tethered to clarity, if you're not working hard as the mature ones in the group to bring clarity from God's word. You're not building discernment in the, the men that you're discipling. And pretty soon, that will ultimately then result in, in a, uh, gaps, pores, openings for Satan to, to get in, for the flesh to begin to produce error in the group. So that's why we say it, your discipleship must be grounded in the most mature in the group or the most mature doing discipling of the immature, you must begin uh, to, to stay ahead of the areas that you're trying to deal with in that person's life. You must bring great clarity to the issue. It's not an academic exercise. It's not merely disseminating data. It's we're grounded in the clarity of the truth. We're working toward the clarity of the truth to know it so that we pass it on accurately. And, and again, you see principles like this repeated by the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, the things you've heard from me, things you've seen in me and heard from me, uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, I want you to pass on to faithful men, and I want you to teach faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's this, there's this great unbroken chain idea of accurately 
putting it into the mind. It's, it's the word group in the New Testament for to put the things into the mind. And how do you know you put it into the mind? When they can articulate it back to you and they know how to live it and, and the implications are clear in their life and you're starting to see them yield to it. That's really what discipleship then becomes as a process. Clarity of the truth, exhorting you in believing it and obeying it, and then taking the implications of that and having you understand them You articulate the truth back to me accurately, and then you begin to see the fruit of that obedience in your life as well. And I'm not satisfied until I get to that point. And it starts with my understanding of the truth. So we're not interested in the lowest common denominator. Discipleship groups don't have to be the lowest common biblical literacy. It doesn't have to be. In fact, it should be. You say, well, not everybody's going to be a Shane Kohler or a pastor who's you know, gone to seminary. That isn't the point. Seminary's not the point. He's called, like the pastors and elders of the church, to a level of service to the people of God that requires that kind of schooling and training and testing and challenge and then provenness in the handling of God's Word. His level of gifting and calling requires that. But let's just take that level of service to the church out of it for a moment. What does Ephesians 4 say he is doing? He's equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And the first goal out of the gate in Ephesians 4 is that we all attain to the unity of the faith. Doctrinal harmony, grasp, understanding, clarity. All of us. So your pastors aren't teaching you so you could stay at some lower lower level of clarity and understanding, or even how to get to it. Your pastors are teaching you how to study the Bible by the way they preach. They're teaching you how to communicate truth, how to draw out its implications. And they're teaching you how to mature in the obedience of it so that when you go out and you disciple, the pastor has confidence that it's a level God's called you to do it. There's clarity. There's discernment. There's protection. You know, you remember, look, look at Ephesians 4 for a moment because it's, Verse 14 is an important add to that section. Again, a familiar text to you, but he does put into this section Ephesians 4, and it'll be another result of this great equipping. First of all, there's verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The article is there, present, the faith. It's the until we all attain to unity around doctrine, clarity of doctrine. I love that. That's a goal of the equipping. Uh, I ought to be able to sit down with the mature of this group and ask about the general uh, areas of theology, and you should be able to, the goal is to be able to articulate those general areas of theology. Not, not at the level of service a pastor might or someone who's had that level of training, but you must know the basic tenets of theology and you, I would recommend that you, you do a summary class or a survey class of theology, maybe under your pastor, and then memorize one or two verses that clearly teach that area of theology. Commit that to memory so that in your discipleship group, if something comes up, it starts to send off red flags to you because that's not how you learned it, and that's not the passage and what the passage means, and you can bring clarity to that. That should be true of all the men of the church. At its most basic level, all the men of the church, you should understand what the Bible says about the Bible itself, about Scripture. You should understand what the Bible says about God and Christ, and I'll talk a little bit about that later, what you're looking for in a discipleship dynamic. But here in Ephesians, not only do you have the unity of the faith, but you also have this true knowledge of the Son of God, this experiential knowledge, the compound verb. Uh, it, it means, um, it's a compound phrase, but the idea is it takes the word for knowledge, at this noun, and then it accentuates it and says, I want you to know it experientially by your life. So we're all to be obedient in it. We're to be maturing experientially in it. And then he strings these phrases together. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Christ is the target. Christ's likeness is the target. If we haven't reached it yet, we're still, we're still learning. We're still clarifying. And then verse 14 is this great result. As a result, we're no longer infants. 
We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. I love that because he throws in there the idea of protection. In discipleship relationships, if you're untethered to scripture, you cannot protect the men that are influenced by you. I'll just, you know, take a little moment here to express a concern I have as a pastor with the media exposure we have. And I mean, I mean online resources. Never before in the history of the church have more people been shepherding my sheep. And I don't like that. Because while there's great benefit in sending our people to great resources, until they have discernment, there's also exposure to the savagery of the wolves. And Satan is coughing up a constant supply of savage wolves to shred my sheep. And so I'll often say to my congregation, you know, if you find that you have a pattern of missing something, in other words, you're in, halfway into a book and somebody tells you you're missing that there's heresy in there, or you're listening to some preacher online and you don't understand that there's a systematic drift away from the clarity and authority of Scripture in that guy's ministry, but you're halfway into it. If there's a pattern of not seeing those things, I'll often say to the congregation, you've got to pull back from your exposure to those things and build into your life discernment about the truth, a body of doctrine that you hold on to and understand rightly. Because for some reason, flags aren't going up. Alarm bells aren't going off where they should. And we're not talking about high-end nuances or big academic things or things that scholars uh, hang around and talk about amongst their 15 colleagues. We're not talking about those. We're talking about basic, soul-threatening heresies that come against clear doctrine taught in Scripture. And it gets its way in through small group discipleship, invariably. Because the leader of that group or the most mature in that group, uh, they're untethered. And their principles aren't driven by, by doctrine. They're driven by other things. In fact, preaching hasn't really helped. Um, you, you are very blessed by God to have the finest in the pulpit. And, and you know as well as I do, when you travel and you go to some other church, you know that's not always the case. You go to pulpits and you're, you're thinking, what, I don't, I'm not even sure what to say about what just happened. Or you say, I'm not sure I can put my finger on what went wrong, but something inside me is saying that's not right because that's not clear like I get it. But pragmatism has left evangelicalism a wasteland because in pulpits, people have resorted not to, to the authority and drama of the text and the context of Scripture, but they have devised clever things to attract an audience. Well, the net effect of that is that the audience gets dumbed down over time doctrinally, and then, then the, the most basic uh, biblical truths go out, so Christianity 101 is out, and into its place is, is pop psychology and man's common sense and even human drama. In other words, if I tell you a story about my life and I say it had a spiritual in- impact, then you're listening to it, and if you relate to the story, you've suddenly been spiritually impacted. There's no truth involved in that, necessarily. Preaching has even turned to that. Just a bunch of illustrations after illustrations after illustrations and people go away saying, wasn't that a great illustration? Yeah, but what, what did the text say? I know it was a great illustration. I know you resonated with it because that guy had the same problem in his marriage that you had in yours. And that's all you heard. But was the principle biblical that he taught? Or did you just resonate with the human drama of it and that's, that became the spiritual impact? I mean, listen, beloved, that has become preaching. Guys are learning to to tell some sort of human experience that everyone can relate to. Nothing wrong with illustrations to illustrate a truth already taught in Scripture. But that's not what, what guys are doing. In preaching, they're leaving congregations with the impression that the spiritual impact of a principle comes when I can resonate with your life on some level. And the principle gets lost in the shuffle. The biblical clarity of it gets murky. And all I'm focused on is... You had an experience like I had, and therefore, 
you know, I learned something. What did you learn? How do you know it's biblical? How will you ever know? And so it's absolutely critical that you continue to tether yourself to the clarity of Scripture and the principles and their implications so that when you disciple, you're not, you're not squandering um, the people that God's given to you and you're not opening the gate to serious trouble. You say, well, has this really been a problem? Well, I ask you, how else in the world did we ever accept some of the shenanigans that have been going on in evangelicalism? How did we ever get to the place where we are entertaining the idea that to have homosexual desires is not a sin? That is being taught in evangelicalism by high-end mainstream guys. That the desire for an attraction to the same sex is not a sin, and it's even better for that person as a trial because if he never acts on them, then he grows in Christ more. How did we ever get to the place where we're accepting that? Romans 1 says men burned in their desire for one another, and that is wickedness. How can you ever get to the place where we would accept that kind of thing? How did we get there? This immature people, undiscerning, passing on things, not discerning this book, this leader, this person. How did we ever get to the place where such carnality has existed at the pastoral level, and we just say, well, above reproach doesn't really mean that. I mean, none of us are perfect, We just keep pulling the bar down to the lowest common moral denominator. How does that happen? Very untethered discipleship, life-on-life influence. And since more people are shepherding my sheep through the media than have ever been shepherding it, I tighten up that discipleship dynamic in our church. We tighten up the clarity with the most mature. I want the, the lay guys in our church with the most maturity to be the ringleaders in our discipleship because they know how to protect the truth and protect the men as they're learning to obey it and become a better follower of Christ. So it has to be tethered. Now, suppose you know your doctrine. Then then a third pitfall has to be guarded against. And that is discipleship without proven character. Emphasis on the word proven. Proven character. You can have all the wonderful clarity in Scripture that is necessary, but if you're not a man of proven character, then you will mitigate against such great doctrine. The Word of God will do its work because it doesn't return void, but you will severely hinder it by the hypocrisy of your life. Now, the reason I emphasize the word proven is because I am, I am deliberately taking a, a hit. I am trying to torpedo the modern concept of leadership without provenness. Um, the mere boast that you have integrity uh, without actually being tested and proven in those things. Uh, there's a younger generation that, is, and my, I raised four of them, so you know, people say, well, you need to understand millennials. I have four millennials as kids. I mean, they're somewhere between Gen Xer and millennial because they're 35 down to down to 30, 28, but, but nonetheless, I understand that generation, but even my kids will say that their generation doesn't look at provenness as anything at all. Why would you need to be proven? I'm entitled. The word for them is entitled, not necessarily being tested and proven. And uh, I was chuckling the other day, talking with some of the young guys in the seminary about this again. And because they wanted to know, they wanted me to expand on an illustration I'd used. And, and I, years ago, just started thinking about this whole thing. And I thought about the illustration of, of an unearned doctorate. When, when someone is given a doctorate honorarily, we call it an unearned doctorate. Why? Because he didn't go through the same paces. It may be that we gave it to him honorarily for some other uh, dignified and high-end reason. But essentially, we still called it an unearned doctorate. Because that's what it was by comparison. If you gave someone an unearned doctorate back then, they, they weren't embarrassed by the title because, because actually it is still an honor. It's an honorary doctorate for some lifetime work of some kind that isn't measured by the classroom or the institution. 
We still called it an unearned doctrine, and you weren't embarrassed about that. If you gave a, a similar thing to today's generation, the younger crowd, their idea of an unearned doctorate wouldn't make sense to them because in their minds, if you gave it to them, it was because they were entitled to it. They're just better. They don't have to earn it. If someone standing next to them said, well, I earned mine, you didn't earn yours. Yeah, but I didn't have to. You obviously were less than me because you had to go earn it. I was given to it because I was entitled to it. That's the difference between even the, the generation I grew up in, which was wicked and proud and the 60s and 70s culture, all full of ourselves. And, and we handed the world this next generation in our culture. But this next generation just took it another level and said, I don't have to be proven. I don't have to be proven. When they come to a job interview, proven this, what are you talking about? Why are you bothered by the fact that I've had eight jobs and all of them for three months? Why are you bothered by that? I mean, I'm, I'm out there, you know? Or, or the idea is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a video on YouTube and I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to make millions and wear a t-shirt and do what I want. This is embedded into the mentality and their kids are going to be, as the New Testament indicates, a, a worse version, a more hellish version than that. But discipleship has its depth and its gravitas from proven character. Why? Because that is real character. Everyone knows if you have any sense of life itself, that life comes at you, and it doesn't matter what you boast, you will end up facing what every human being faces, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No test has overtaken you, but such as is what? Common to all of us. And when an older person is down the road and hears the idealism of the young person, what do we do? We just sort of smile. We get a little smirk on our face. And they say, what are you smirking about? Oh, you know. I remember MacArthur saying years ago when he, when he first went to Grace Community Church, he was a young man. And about two years into it, the church was growing. It was just exploding. And they loved his teaching. They let him preach for over an hour. It was just unreal. And they loved his kids and paid him a lot of money. And, and he said to his father, Jack, whom I knew, and Jack was a Scotsman and formidable, and he said, Dad, when you, you told me ministry was going to be really, really hard. When, when does all that start? And Jack just said, oh, just wait. <laughs> That's all he said. Just wait. And, you know, here is, here is MacArthur about to reach his 50th year and probably could look at Grace Church and has shepherded four or five different congregations, so to speak, and lots of ministry, strife, and trouble, and difficulty, and challenge, because it's an imperfect ministry. It's life. Every older man knows when a younger man, when a younger man's idealism is coming out, what is coming. Real life, you can't get around it, and if you're not prepared for it, it will bowl you over. It will take you by storm. And uh, what does the young person need most? You need the storm. You need the testing. Because in 10 years, someone's going to come along who needs you to speak to them. And you need to have come through the testing proven. So that your character is actually forged by faith and obedience. And so this is why it's so troubling if you do not have proven character and you jump into the discipleship relationship and wander past your, your moral pay grade. You have to be very, very careful that you don't speak out of what you've not lived. All of us, no doubt, speak things to others that we don't live perfectly. And every Sunday, I preach better than I live, I hope, in terms of the sermon and its content. It's sad that I don't live up to all that, even though my wife expects it every day. The fact is, um, as I preach, I'm aware of the fact that God is forging in me through circumstances and life a way to speak those things in provenness. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm able to see my limitations, but I want to press forward, as Paul says, into proven character. I'll give you three areas that, that are absolutely critical. And if you really just want to work here, then, then discipleship can be effective in your life. Where do you want to be proven most, and where does the true power from your discipleship ministry come from in your character? The first one, of course, will be obvious to you, and that's integrity. Integrity. 
There's only one place where a spiritual influence comes from, and that is a man's character. And if you want to really work hard on the core of your life, it begins here with integrity. This is, I believe, what Paul is describing in Ephesians 6 in the armor when he talks about the belt of truth. Uh, most commentators would tell you that while it could be translated belt of truth, it's probably more the idea of truthfulness or at the core of your life there is integrity, honesty. You are the same on the inside of your life and your mind and your heart as you say to others that you are. Uh, in fact, that's where we get the word integrity. It's from the word integer, which is whole. Uh, remember your math classes, whole numbers, integers. This is the idea. You're a whole person. You are the same on the outside as you are on the inside. And when no one's around, you live the same way as they see when they're around. This is absolutely critical for discipleship so that you are a man of proven integrity. Who you are when it is just you and Christ is all you really are, spiritually. Who you are at your best when it's just you and Christ is all you and I really are. And no more, because the rest is merely a portrayal or, or a limited access from someone who watches your life. In some ways, that's a kindness from God, isn't it? I mean, it's wonderful that God doesn't show us all the things we have to work on and, and all at once, or else we'd be undone. But it's also a kindness from God that, that you know, people can't sort of pull back the veil of your flesh and see all the darkness that's in there. In fact, the next time you get criticized and it's a misrepresentation of you, you might want to think about the fact that if they saw the real stuff that's in there, you know, game over, tilt. So um, integrity is living privately the way you live publicly, being the same person when no one's around that you are when everyone is around. In 1 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul wrote back to the Thessalonians about some things he was accused of, and I, I, don't, I may have mentioned this to some of our guys in the seminary class at one point, but it's one of my favorite sections in 1 Thessalonians 2 where I'll just cover this a little bit here before our time is gone, but it's just amazing that when he writes back, he says some things in here that are compelling to me. He writes back to them because he'd been accused of not having integrity. Uh, Paul just wants your money or Paul just wants to control you or Paul is a, he's, he's like every other huckster who's come through town. He's just, he's just after his own significance, his own influence. He, he's a Jew from Tarsus and he, he's just all about control and rigidity and, and uh, now he's left that. Now he's against Judaism. So he's just, he's just a talker. And when Paul writes back, he's defending the integrity of the ministry and the way he does it, he's not fearing that anyone could rise up and contradict. This is absolutely staggering. A new church plant, he'd spent all that time with them, taught them their doctrine. He'd only been there about maybe three months at the outside before he got whisked away because they feared for his life. But a church was born, and when he writes back, having gone now down to Corinth, he writes them back and says, look, we didn't come to you with a pretext for greed. We didn't have flattering speech, verse 5. And notice verse 4, we have been approved by God. Now he's invoking God's look at his heart and his integrity. Verse 5, God is witness. We didn't seek glory from men, either from you or from others. We might have asserted our apostolic authority, verse 7, but we proved to be gentle among you. You, you looked at our life. You can see it. Verse, verse 9, you recall. Think about it, guys. We were with you. You recall. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God. Verse 11, just as you know. I mean, he is using language that is putting his own integrity on the line and saying, you saw how we lived among you. You saw our private lives. You walked in on us when we were teaching somebody. You looked at the consistency of our teaching. And by the way, we did all this amid much opposition. So there was a cost to it, and we were willing to pay the cost. Right? You remember, he'd just gotten beaten up in Philippi, and he comes right into Thessalonica and goes into the synagogue. I mean, that's gutsy. That's gutsy. After he'd just been beaten. Amid much opposition, we preached to you. He had integrity. And he, 
That means he kept a clear conscience. You want to disciple men well? Then don't stray from a clear conscience. Strive to keep a clean conscience. How do you do that? Repent of every sin you know of. Turn from every sin you know of. When your conscience is screaming at you because your, the sermon last week informed it, or your Bible study informed it, or your, your work in sanctification informed your conscience, then don't violate it. Don't silence it. It's nerve endings. They need to stay very sensitive. And if you step on them and trample them or burn them, they get cauterized and you cannot hear the truth as strongly as you should. You will not, you will not find yourself successful as a discipler. You must keep a clear conscience. By the way, I saw um, uh, Andy Nacelli's book on the bookshelf there on the conscience. It's excellent work. It's a little book to uh, help you understand it. I'd say probably the best book on the conscience is MacArthur's The Vanishing Conscience. Still a classic that I turn to regularly. Um, his work in there on the conscience is just stunning uh, historical work on how people viewed the conscience, how the church viewed the conscience. It's just an excellent book. And it will challenge you. And you might want to pick up the book, the Victor book series book of his called The Power of Integrity, uh, just on this one issue. And then secondly, humility. <clears throat> humility. You want to disciple well? As I said, you can't have an idol of significance, so this is just sort of uh, picking up on that same idea. You cannot have an idol of significance. We deserve nothing. We've been given salvation undeserved. We have to see ourselves rightly. And um, Isaiah 66, 2 would just be a good verse to commit to memory. Uh, to this one I will look, the Lord says, to him who's humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Discipleship can be really rich and fruitful if you will be one who's known for trembling at God's word. When, you're, when the men under your influence see the way you treat God's word in your life, when they, when they see your countenance uh, grieved over sin that they would consider a small issue, when you're very, very careful in relationships to speak truth, and if you, if you make a mistake, you, you admit and correct those things. There's no blame shifting. When the men around you see a humility and transparency that owns up to your sin and that is willing to take responsibility before the Lord for those things, this is the kind of person God will use in discipleship greatly. And then thirdly, this would be obvious to you as well, just faithfulness over the long haul. You're going to do this till Jesus comes, and you're to be faithful. What is that going to require? It's going to require a battle. You cannot be faithful on cruise control. No one is faithful on cruise control because the Christian life is not a cruise. Christian life is embattlement for your sanctification in Christ-likeness and everyone around you. I don't know about you, but you know, I mentioned last night that sometimes people don't disciple because people's lives get messy. Well, then who do you turn to when your life gets messy? It's like the person that said to Charles Wesley, you know, I never forgive. And he said, well, then I hope you never sin. I mean, your life's going to get messy. Who are you going to turn to? Why would you never want to insert yourself into the mess of someone else's life if you get to see the fruit of it? I cannot tell you how wonderful it is. And, and you men know this who disciple. The, the greatest thing in the world for us this side of glory is to see the lights go on in someone's life and to, to watch the fruit of that bear itself out. And then you think that's thrilling. Then somebody comes to you and says, hey, I just want you to know something. You don't know me, but I have been discipled by this individual. They brought me to Christ and discipled me. And they told me that they were discipled by this individual and your name keeps coming up. And that individual said, you're the one who spent so much time with them. Now you've got two, three, four, five layers that God is using, and you didn't even know it. And in fact, if he didn't, had he not providentially given you that little encouragement, you wouldn't know it till glory. And after all, what is heaven going to be like if you've persevered and been faithful? Heaven is going to be this rich experience of tracing all those lines of influence. Tracing every one of them. And so you, you really don't want to think about discipleship as, well, let me find the cleanest options, the guys with the least amount of trouble, the guys that are most like me. In fact, I would encourage you to make 
your best long-term friends, those that had the biggest struggles and you were used by God to get in their life. I have a, a, there's a layman that I have known for over 30 years. He's the closest relationship in Christ I have as a layman and as a pastor. And our, our relationship started in a crisis. And I was called into a crisis. And to this day, we have the richest fellowship and the influence he's been able to have on his family and his kids and beyond. Um, nearly 30 years ago now, well, certainly 30 years ago, I began to pray for an unsaved family in our family, my, my wife's sister and her husband. Because I palled around with him in high school and we were both wicked. And then the Lord saved me at 21 and, and he stayed a rebel and God left him in that rebellion. God was merciful to me without explication, without the ability to fathom it, and left him in his sin. And our two families then went apart, and I began to feel a terrible burden on my heart for those kids all those years. And, and they have three children, and I just began to pray for them. And Lord, I, I encouraged that guy in his wickedness as he encouraged me, and you saved me and haven't reached out to him, haven't brought faith and repentance to him. And his life did exactly what you would expect. He is in jail today and in and out of whatever and, and a constant substance abuser and his life's a disaster. But all those kids' lives, he just abandoned them. He just neglected them. And so did their mother. And so I'd prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And when the boy, the oldest of the three, two, uh, boy and two girls, when he was in college, he would call me desperate, and I'd give him the gospel again, and, and he wouldn't turn to Christ. And, and then as the girls came up, and and they were uh, big-time athletes, and, and you know, one of them eventuated at Penn State in female rugby and all this stuff. And these are, these are lovely kids, but they just, just independent, absolutely no clue. I gave him the gospel all the time and prayed for him all the time. Well, well, six years ago, the Lord saved the, the son and he moved down to Florida and, and began to then shepherd him at close range. And then his sisters, having rejected the gospel for so long and their lives a mess, um, the oldest sister a year ago came to Christ and the youngest came to Christ two years ago. And they're in our home and we're shepherding them now. And Well, the son is married now and has a lovely, uh, godly wife. And these two girls are in our lives. And I, I think about that and, and when... When I ponder what God is doing there, I'm not thinking about what God has merely done in their life. I'm thinking about the influence that can tentacle out into their family, gospel influence that God gave me this small, tiny privilege to be a part of. I mean, 30 years is nothing. 30 years is really nothing. Uh, George Mueller prayed for a high school buddy for 62 years. And he was saved a year before his death. 62 years of discipleship investment with no return, messy lives, of course. That's a small price to pay. So that in heaven, that, that influence goes out. And since George Mueller's death, that story's been told over and over again because he recounted it. How many people have been encouraged by merely that? And here we are today on this date in a men's conference. And I told you you prayed for 62 years. And what's the Spirit doing in your life about the people? So now the encouragement just continues exponentially. So who cares if it's messy? You persevere. You're faithful. It's embattlement all your life till we meet Jesus. Why do you want to relax here? You're going to relax in eternity. Why do you want to do all your sleeping here? Are you kidding? Little sleep, little folding of the hands, and life comes in like a vagabond. You don't want that. You want to burn up in the service of Christ, right? Because in eternity, all those stories are going to be told. And so, proven integrity, proven humility, proven faithfulness in the battle is what makes you a compelling discipler all your life. And it can't be untethered to... A scripture, and it can't be full of selfish ambition, and it certainly shouldn't be without provenness, testedness. That's what we need to pursue, man, right there.
And don't worry about how God brings it about. You just pray. Lord, I want to be proven in these ways. Lord, I want to have clarity of Scripture so that I can be used and not be a danger to the flock. And Lord, make sure that you help me crush that uncrucified lust for significance in every place in my life. And then you just bring whomever you want, whenever you want. And make me ready. MacArthur used to say to me, put yourself in the place of maximum blessing. Don't take yourself out of the place of maximum blessing, but put yourself there. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the challenges that you bring from these few texts and these principles. And we have, we confess, always or often thought of discipleship in in more shallow, superficial terms. But discipleship is what you... It's what you do. It's what you began when you saved us. And and all we need to do is be Christ-like and you'll use us because you use those who tremble at your word. Lord, these men, this church, so much resource here to whom much is given. Much is required. We must persevere in these things without, without hesitation. And yet we confess our limitations and our weaknesses and, and our infirmities and sins. And we, we love significance way too much. It's just terrible how much of that leaks into our life and makes us ineffective. And we sometimes lack integrity and have patterns of pride. And we, we struggle to persevere because we're afraid of the battle or we're just lazy or unbelieving. Lord, make us men who who are tethered to the clarity of Scripture and who want to be proven in the battles of life that we might be the best, most effective disciples when you call us to the task in someone's life. And may we always honor you above any other place we might be tempted to worship, particularly our own, our own selves, our own significance. We pray we use these things mightily in us. For your glory's sake we pray.